Thank you for listening to this Podcast One production. Now available on Apple Podcasts, Podcast One, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. is Representative Dan Kilby, the congressman serving Michigan's 5th District. Congressman Dan Kilby was born and raised in Flint, Michigan. He attended Flint Northern High School and Central Michigan. At the age of 18, Congressman Dan Kilby became one of the youngest elected officials in the nation when he was elected to the Flint Board of Education in 1977. The bottom line is... Congressman Kildee is as flint as you get. I've had the honor and the privilege of getting to know and meet Representative Kildee, and I know him as a fighter for individual rights, for science, and for clean water. It's great to have you here today, Congressman Kildee. Thank you so much. Thank you. Uh, That's a really nice introduction. The nicest thing I think anyone can ever have said about them is that they are as Flint as they get. You know, coming from Flint, we, we're really proud of our community. And so thank you for that. Well, you're so welcome. And what a wonderful contribution um, you have made with your community and Flint and, and the people there. I really would like to give a shout out to are, are quite incredible and their determination and how they've come together and the ongoing fight that they have. So, I think that would be one of the first things I'd love for you to share with us is an update on Flint and where we are now. Well, I think the most important thing for people to know is that the the water crisis in Flint is not over. You know, there's this sense, and I get it from my colleagues, I get it from people around the country that I talk to. People ask, you know, uh, how things are going, and they're usually surprised when I say, well, you know, we're still getting through it. It's not over with. We're still replacing lead service lines. We're still spending the money that Congress was able to appropriate to improve the water. We still have a long way to go to have a water system that people can trust. But I mean, even further, the effect of the Flint water crisis is going to be felt for decades because the, particularly children, but you know everybody is affected by it, obviously, but lead's a neurotoxin. It affects brain development. And the very young children whose lives uh, were touched by the water crisis will have the entire trajectory of their lives affected. And so a lot of the focus of our work has been on the infrastructure, obviously, but most, mm-hmm. most of it's really focused on the human aspect of this and how do we compensate for the impact of lead on the developing brain of a child, that means early childhood education, that means smaller class sizes, that means access to special support services that could go on for a long, long time. So the biggest message I try to send to people is, you know, these crises, these events happen and they're in the spotlight for a little while and then they, they fade. And, of course, for the people who live there, it's, it's ongoing. And that, you know, that is such a valid point. And I, you know, uh, the, the news cycles are, you know, and 
news cycles and they change often and their sensationalism and and I don't say that in any way other than the cycle moves fast and to your point that the community is still left I think I would want to ask you and I ask myself this and I know listeners would want to know because you think how do we ever get here you know it, this is the United States of America that this issue in Flint was just silently occurring. And how did we get here? What went wrong? Yeah, that's a, it's a great question. And it's, I think in Flint, it's, it was a convergence of a lot of things. One, um, I think we have for so long just operated on the assumption that you turn the tap on and the water's clean. And mm-hmm. people don't necessarily think about the science that goes into making sure, ensuring that water is safe and clean. Um, you know, when we live in a society that is so focused on short-term profits and so dismissive of the regulatory environment, you know, sort of the regulatory approach that we try to take to clean water, clean air, as if somehow that interferes with our ability to generate wealth and create commerce, those trade-offs have, they they come with a high price. And so I think what happened is that there was this toxic combination of sort of balance sheet thinking where the dollars and cents rule and health is just assumed. And then the concentration of those consequences on the poorest people in the country and particularly on people of color. The environmental aspect of racism is something that is often yes. overlooked. And, and I think so. It's, it was a toxic combination of those, those two things that really took us to the place that Flint happened. And, and I, oh, gosh, you know, I've been doing this for a good 20, 25 years, not to date myself. But, um, and I see this, and every point you make is so accurate. And I, I worry because... I don't know if there has been, we as the people have always felt, because we're not a politician or a doctor or a lawyer or a scientist, therefore maybe we shouldn't be speaking up on these issues or we're pushed back or somehow ridiculed and so then we go silent again or that we as the people, you know, believed that an agency or these issues were would be taken care of and to find out that they're not is really disturbing to these communities and how we get out of our comfortability or a thought process or something we've learned that this is taken care of of it you know this is taken care of for us but it's not and the complexity of water that's such a valid point you know, we don't understand. Uh, we turn our water on and we, and I never want to say the word, we take it for granted. And I don't believe we go there in the future at all. Right. How yeah, it gets to us. And I was involved in Flint. Uh, I had some of the community come to me a year before um, this even became something national. And I remember Robert Bocock, um, our water expert going out there and and trying to work with them on how this lead disaster even happened. And can you give for the listeners kind of a background on actually what was going on or what went wrong or what the city did to change something that really blew the situation up? 
Yeah, it's a really, it's a sad story because in Flint's case, um, it was the water crisis, but it could have been something else because the background of the Flint situation was that the city was in very dire financial circumstances. And of course, we have lots of communities that have been allowed to get to a place like Flint was where they're one miscalculation away from something going really bad, something really going wrong. In Flint's case, they had lost control of their local government. The, the state of Michigan had suspended local control and imposed a financial manager, like a receiver, to take over the city and run it like a business. Every time you hear somebody say, run it like a business, run as far away from them as you can. So they, <laughs> Good advice. Yeah, they, they made all these decisions essentially to save money. One of the choices they made was to temporarily switch Flint from using water from Lake Huron, which is, you know, part of the Great Lakes, the greatest freshwater source on the planet, um, from the, you know, purest and deepest freshwater source we have to using uh, the Flint River. You know, a lot of communities have to use river water. So it's not so much Mm -hmm. that switch by itself, even though for those of us who are from Flint, we thought that was like the punchline to a joke to drink from the Flint River. But, you know, a lot of communities have to use river water, but the science is different. Uh, River water, you know, is typically more corrosive, saltier. It's not lake water. Water is just not water. There's different compositions. And the fact that they made the switch to save money and then failed to properly treat that water because its composition was so dramatically different than what we were getting from Lake Huron, that caused this highly corrosive water to break down the scale and, and they, they failed to treat it with an, with an orthophosphate. So there was no coating between the lead service lines and that highly corrosive water, which broke, you know, broke down that coating and the lead leached into the drinking water and into the bodies of those people. That's criminal enough. The worst, I guess one of the worst aspects of it is that when those citizens that you know said, look, something's wrong, the state government told them, no, it's fine. When they knew, when they knew that it wasn't, that's the criminal act. Absolutely. And, you know, I, I come into these communities and I believe them. It is, you just don't come into these communities that because they have nothing better to do, making up stories that they say. And we often don't listen to them. The very people that are living and breathing and drinking the water and seeing the effects of something that's going on, and they're often told that couldn't possibly be happening. Right. Yeah. And so it's... And this is what we get. This is the result that we get. I mean, it's a sad story. It really is. It is a sad story, and it's one that grabbed the whole nation, and I think we're still taken back that this hasn't been fixed yet. And it's it's very daunting because, you know, uh, the water comes into the municipality, it runs through a massive distribution system, miles and miles of it, it gets to the homes, and to put such a large system, and what's frightening to think is what, we have 80,000 plus municipalities in this country right. that 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 whole system is 
in peril is pretty daunting for the people. But I think if, you know, we look at Flint and Flint is going to be, I think, for years to come, a very big learning lesson um, on what we the people can do, communities, local government, state government, moving all the way up to D.C., and the changes that we have to make. And here I want to say, you know, I I commend you so much because most people don't know about the lead and copper rule. Right. And outdated policies that need to be looked at. And you are certainly a congressman that I have admired because you follow through on these issues. And somewhere, somehow, and there's no point in, you know, finger pointing because balls get dropped and a lot of things happen that the consistency of follow through doesn't occur. And you've done that beautifully. And would you share with the listeners about the lead and copper rule and the work that you've done on that? Yeah. I mean, you're so right. I mean, we sort of have a saying around here. We don't give up till we win uh, <laughs> my office because the most important aspect of any of these fights is to stick with it. So like with the lead and copper rule, we have been on them for years to update the lead and copper rule. And now in this administration, well, when they did finally come forward with their most recent version of that, it clearly weakens the ability to enforce um, against lead and copper. Or in, in lead, of course, is the issue. So what we've done is, uh, and I've been working um, with other colleagues, both in the House and the Senate, most notably with Senator Duckworth from Illinois, um, we have legislation since uh, the EPA won't come forward with a lead and copper rule that really protects public health. Uh, our goal is to mandate it through congressional action. Right now, uh, the lead and copper rule allows 15 parts per billion of lead in drinking water. There's no safe level of lead in drinking water. So mm-hmm. the, the, the lead and copper rule has been devised as to the convenience of, of uh, water systems. And my view is it ought to be based on health, not on the convenience to the water uh, system. So our, we have something called the No Lead Act, which basically would say that by the way we filed the bill, by 2026, we would take it down to five parts per billion, essentially erasing lead from our drinking water. And then just today, actually, in the last couple of days, we sort of put our money where our mouth mouth is. Uh, Some of my Michigan colleagues and I have introduced an amendment to the infrastructure bill that will be voted on uh, next week, I think it is, it's next week, to, to spend uh, $22.5 billion uh, to support those communities to get the lead lines out. You know, so it's not right. just about regulation. The, the, the problem, of course, is that if, if we just have a regulation and we don't recognize the fact that really poor communities don't have the financial resources that it takes to make these changes, then, you know, all they'll do is just be put in non-compliance. So we're also trying to make sure that we have the resources uh, to make sure they can get rid of those lead service lines. That would make a big difference. Well, you know, and the lead and copper rule, um, and correct me if I'm wrong, um, states that you only have to test for lead once every four years. Is that correct? Yeah, I mean, that's part of, part of the problem with the lead and copper. There's lots of problems with the lead and copper rule. Yes. Part of it is that the testing requirements have been fairly minimal, and under this administration will be even less stringent. Um, and then 
you know, not until recently, was it required that the EPA, if they had access to data that showed that some water system was out of compliance, that they were not obligated to tell anybody. So they were leaving it to either the local government or the states to that's, that's, reveal. That's, that's shocking to me. And I hope anyone listening that is shocking to them. And it just resonates with me all the more reason why in communities, we the people need to be vigilant. And um, when we see these issues, you know, lead is hard. You know, some chemicals in water have a smell. Um, you'll smell more bleach or um, I get thousands of, a month of photos of black water, yellow water, green water, orange water. There's oftentimes can be a clue to a consumer something's changed with the water, like the chrome 6 at around 1 ppm starts turning a yellow I've had people contact me for those reasons before, but lead doesn't. Yeah. Can't see have it, can't smell it, it's can't silent. taste it. Yeah. All right. So, how, you know, one of the next questions I wanted to ask you is, is Flint alone. How many more Flints could be out there? Well, they're all over the place. I mean, I mean, just recently we've had Newark, obviously Detroit. We've had other places. Yeah. The, the real, the reality is, is that one of the one of the positive, I guess, if there is a silver lining to Flint, it's that uh, communities began to take more seriously the testing that they get. You know, mm-hmm. every water system, in one way or another, has an ordinance that requires the water system to provide reports to their customers. But, you know, you get those things in the mail and you just don't even pay attention to it. Most people didn't. Well, they don't understand them half the time. It's like, for me, I get them and it's like reading my insurance policy. You give it, you take it away. What does this mean? But post, you know, after Flint, people started paying more attention. And you made a very important point at the outset. And it's that, um, you know, people need to engage and often they feel like they don't understand this stuff. The truth is they Mm -hmm. really, you know, they get it. The, the problem is that, you know, you know the, the language sometimes that, that people in, you know, in water systems or in government use can be daunting. But at the end of it all, people know their interests. They know what's good for them. And they know when something's wrong. And, you know, the truth of the matter is, in the case of Flint, it was the citizens. It, you know, it wasn't politicians. It was the citizens who would not take no for an answer and we're insistent that there was something wrong and forced uh, the question and it led to Dr. Mona Hanatisha doing the, the, the blood level testing and revealed what all these citizens had been saying for months and months and months Right. that, the, that the, the state government was lying to them there really was something wrong and so people should people should follow their instincts follow their gut you know, I, you know, when I have to make a choice between listening to a mom or listening to some, you know, bureaucrat defending a system, mm-hmm. uh, I'm going to listen. Mom knows what's good for their for her kid, you know, and they know Absolutely. that the water that doesn't look right isn't good for their kid. Absolutely. And, you know, uh, I shared with you uh, it's my book coming out, Superman's Not Coming our national water crisis and what we the people can do about it and it is we the people and i think that we've forgotten that for a whole host of reasons we're learning now why we need 
to participate. And I share what what I have seen that communities have taught me. Um, they it's called logic, but they're coming from their common sense set of skills. That mother that knows her child, that knows deep in your gut something's not wrong. And when you follow that instinct, it will logically take you to the next step. And leverage, and oftentimes people think leverage in a negative way. Leverage is a good thing, especially in your community, and that is join thy neighbor. And get to know thy neighbor. And when they get together, what they start finding out is they're like, oh my gosh, that was happening to your kid and to your kid. It changes everything. And then we talked about earlier loyalty and loyalty is your stick to itiveness. And you're really good at this. Now I was born and raised in the Midwest. So I don't know if it's kind of a Midwest kind of thing. Stick to itiveness is a powerful word. My mom reminded me of it and its definition is noun propensity to follow through in a determined manner. Yeah. Dogged persistence, born of obligation and stubbornness. When I get into these communities and when you see Flint, they are dogged. They are determined. They are stubborn. That's their middle name. Yeah. And that is precisely the point that we have to get to. It is about that we, the people, somehow has been lost. Um, and there's this idea that everything else around us w- will take care of it. And lastly, I encourage people to ask themselves, what is our why? Are they going to get involved? And it's truly born of love. You know, there's so much divisiveness happening right now. There really is. And we fight every day for these things because we love our health. Right. We love our children. And, you know, we, we love going to work. We want to send our kids to college. This is what we hope for. So we sometimes need to remind ourselves what this fight is going to be. And it comes from that uh, born of love. That's a, that's exactly and, right. I mean, it's it, this isn't about water. It's not about science. It's about people. It's about it's about taking care of the people we care about and the places that we care about. And you're exactly right. And we need to get involved right there in our own backyard. Um, I want to talk about city council for just a moment and, and your thoughts on that and. But I've learned so much, you know, I've seen friends like, oh, well, I could never, I couldn't speak up at city council. And I've said, first of all, yes, you can, because if you go there, see, no one's ever there. They're talking to themselves. How is it city council can't always read the people's mind to get them to show up at their own city council where so much happens? How important do you think that is? Oh, it's absolutely critical. You know, you mentioned when you introduced me, I served on the Board of Education, which is like the City Council for Schools. Uh, You know, this is democracy at its foundation, local government, because that city council person is just one of your neighbors. You know, it's just correct. You know, they're not there. It's not you know, it's not like going before the Supreme Court. They're just one of your neighbors and they're supposed to be representing your interests, the only way they can do that is if you speak to them, if you represent your interests to them. I, I, when I was in local government, I found that if, if we got 10 people to show up at a meeting, all <laughs> bringing up the same issue, that was a big deal. <laughs> that was like, yeah. wow, we got to do something about this. How hard, is it right. get, how hard is it to get 10 people? I mean, people, people I think, sometimes get so discouraged because they don't think it matters what they do and say, and then it becomes a self-fulfilling 
prophecy. So mm-hmm. you know, our, our system of democracy uh, is a participatory democracy. It's not just that it works better when people are involved. It only works when people are involved, when people raise their voices. That's the only way our I think we're, works. I think we're seeing that again. I, I, I really feel there's a, there's a wake-up. Uh, and I, I see this individually in communities, but the effect it could have in every town, in every state, if the people, we the people, and engage that city council again. Imagine if each of us in our own backyard did that across the entire country. You could light up change. It would, it would revolutionize our government. I mean, the fact of the matter is that the, the, the people who are least likely to be engaged are the people who have the most at risk. You know, it's, it's the people mm-hmm. who, who spend most of their time just trying to work hard to take care of their families. You know, and I'm talking about right. people, basically poor folks, who are the hardest working people in any community you go to because they're working twice as hard to take care of their families as everybody else is. And sometimes I think they feel like, I just don't have the energy. And I get it. I Absolutely. Get it, you know, but if we could figure a way to, to get more people involved and get more than you know, 55% of the people turning out to vote in elections, for example, it would, it, we would have a different country. We'd have one that's much more reflective of the values of the American people and I think would not allow another Flint, Michigan to happen. And I don't, and I, that is possible, that is reachable, and another Flint cannot happen. I'm worried that they are happening silently. So at a bare minimum, what is it that you would ask or recommend or say needs to be done in these communities? Because even at a bare minimum, I think people get over overwhelmed. Like you said, we, we work and we're raising families and we've been to city council and we hit brick wall after brick wall. And then they think, well, there's nothing I can be done. At a bare minimum, that would give them some empowerment in their own hand that they could do. Well, I mean, I think a couple. Of, one thing for sure is ask questions. Go to those meetings and ask questions. Because very often, just day, bringing daylight to the question changes the way these governments operate. If they think they can get away with it without anybody watching, without anybody asking a question, you don't even have to know the answer, but just ask the question. That's what the people in Flint did, and that made so much difference. Don't assume you have to know the answer to know that it's a good question. You know, like when the best example was, you know, Flint had its democracy suspended, so they couldn't do it. But if they were about to switch from the Great Lakes to the Flint River, and somebody had just said, well, does, does that water need a different kind of treatment? Somebody would have asked that question if they, if they had thought of it. That would have changed the way the decision made I, I, was made. I just think our job isn't to know all the answers as citizens. Our job is to hold government accountable. And the way to do that is to make them answer tough questions, even if you don't know the answer yourself. I think that's critical. The, and it's true. And I think uh, I'll, I'll delve a little deep here. What's critical that I, worries me is when they ask that question and they get that pushback, that they go away um, or why they're feeling that they can't, like, you know, push a little further. I, listen, I, my first clue 
is if I ask a question and you're getting pretty stepping with me, I'm like, what else is going on over there? Yeah. And I really noticed mothers are keen on that. Yep, for sure. And we, you know, so you see it in all sorts of different issues. You know, you're on to something when they start pushing back, when they get, when they get mm-hmm. anxious defensive. or defensive, that's not, <laughs> that, that's, that's when you have to dig in. Absolutely. For me, that's when the fun begins. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> What's you doing over there? Right. Um, so I want to ask you something, and this is maybe a little bit of a loaded question, and, and it, Adele has always baffled me. The Clean Water Act right. was signed by Richard Nixon. So how can it, a clean water be such a divisive, partisan issue? It shouldn't be. I think, I think part of the problem we have, of course, is that, you know, we have an agency called the Environmental Protection Agency, which from time to time occasionally focuses its attention on protecting the environment, but mostly doesn't. Uh, it, you know, the EPA does not stand for everyone pollutes always. It's the Environmental Protection Agency. And the problem, of course, with the Clean Water Act is what what we did is we tasked the EPA to bring forward rules and regulations to enforce the Clean Water Act. But, but like uh, in PFAS, you, we, you know, PFAS is one of those issues that I think falls under this. I'm category. getting to that. Yeah, I'm getting it's, to that. It's one of those chemical. It's a family of chemicals, uh, thousands of different compositions that right now are completely unregulated because the Clean Water Act didn't contemplate them. The EPA could take action to say, look, this is a threat, we're going to regulate. Uh, But in this case, with this particular EPA, it's going to take Congress to do something, to say, look, under we, we need to have a clean water standard. We need to have a drinking water standard. We need to put these chemicals under a regulatory framework so that we can protect the public. So the, 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 the Clean Water Act or the Clean Air Act creates a framework, creates a tool, but it requires the agencies that are charged with enforcing those rules to believe in their mission. And what we have found with the EPA under this administration in particular is that they don't really see their principal responsibility as protecting the environment they see it as protecting the growth of industry. And what, what I say is, if you wanted that job, you know, apply to be the Secretary of Commerce. Don't apply mm-hmm. to be the Environmental Protection Administrator, uh, Administrator of the EPA. We want you to do that job. You know, uh, there, there's a natural tension always between growth and development and protection of the environment. But it doesn't work if both of those elements of tension are on the same side of the equation, both of them can't do that. We have to have somebody saying that environment and health has to come first. And that's why if, you know, Congress is, is an inefficient way to continue to try to hold their feet to the fire. We'll still do it, you know, like mm-hmm. we're working on it right now, but it's, it's not as effective as having people in those jobs who truly believe in the mission that they're tasked with 
you know, personnel is policy when it comes to these, these um, really important roles. And to me, it's the biggest failure is that right now we seem to have an EPA that doesn't believe in the core mission of the agency. And I'm always just blown away at this connection with the environment, but we could go into a whole other hour conversation about just even looking at Flint and the water and the economic collapse and the health collapse that happens just from that. Why we wouldn't understand shoring up our environment for sure leads to a good economy, leads yep. to a healthy population, and everything it is that whatever side of the aisle is disagreeing with, then we can't somehow collectively come to that balance in our politics and as a nation um, still baffles me. Yeah. Yeah, it's frustrating because, you know, in the short term, what we're seeing is that people that, that we have a system now that seems to be thinking that short-term dollars and cents are more important. But even in the in the long term, you, you, you set aside the principle uh, that we ought to protect public health, just for the sake of discussion. If you set aside that principle and just look at it from a pure economic standpoint, it doesn't make sense from an economic standpoint because we all pay. For mm-hmm. failure, we all pay for increased uh, 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 illness. We pay these. We pay a heavy price. That's a good example. You know, I don't like to use that argument because I think there's an underlying principle that ought to override dollars and cents, short or long term. You know, public health, the quality of life, ought to become ought to be the more important principle involved. But even for those who are just looking at dollars and cents, what they're really looking at is very short-term thinking. Because even in the mid and long term, it's always going to be more costly to do it wrong than to do it right. (laughs) Well, I want to interject here that goes to what we're saying. I'm curious your thoughts. As soon as I start reading it, you're probably going to know, but um, it's called the scary truth. It's part one of Superman's not coming. But it says this, man's attitude towards nature is today critically important simply because, excuse me, we have now acquired a fateful power to alter and destroy nature. But man is a part of nature and his war against nature is inevitably a war against himself. We're challenged as mankind has never been challenged before to prove our maturity and our mastery, not of nature, but of ourselves. It was written by Rachel Carson in 1963. Wow. And here we are today. Yeah, I was going to say, that's pretty profound. As As if we can somehow separate ourselves as human beings from nature when we are the product of nature and we are one with it. And I don't know how we ever got to the idea that we measure people on some sort of a balance sheet you know, some spreadsheet. We're not spreadsheet. Mm-hmm. We're human beings, frail human beings. That, that can we be, are. You know. I'd like to think that everything that we're seeing currently, that there is a turning point, that we, the people, we recognize that and how we come back 
to that conversation and everything is built from from nature everything that made us who we are is coming from this planet and to learn that you know we can't keep trying to master it but what we need to do is look at ourselves yeah. and master ourselves and recognize that and and as a whole protect that and i think we grow in better health and prosperity in every way shape form from that seed this yeah. is my thought for the day yeah that's that's pretty profound i, I wish uh, hopeful thinking but i yeah. think it's no, I mean, I think, if we apply it could work i, I think it, it's 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 so obvious that i think sometimes we forget to say it and we just need to remind people right. of that well, I could talk to you forever. And before I let you go, I do want to talk about something else that you've been very involved in, which this will be on and off the podcast on many occasions. Um, the PFCs, the PFOA, the PFOS, which has become the biggest national drinking water crisis, in my opinion, in this country. You were very involved in that. So, Will you share about PFOS sure. and the work that you're doing? Yeah, I mean, this came to me because one of my communities uh, is the home of a former Air Force base where PFOS yep. was used in firefighting foam, which is one of the ways that it gets into the groundwater is for the, through the use of firefighting foam, uh, F they call it. Yeah, and so this is a, f- a whole family of chemicals that's used in lots of applications for fireproofing and waterproofing. So anything from firefighting foam to, you know, nonstick pans to... To Scotch Guard. Scotch Guard or, you know, waterproof boots. I mean, all sorts of stuff. It's all... Flame retardant clothing. It's ubiquitous in the environment. And it's very dangerous. It causes, you know, serious health um, problems, including cancers and other birth defects. And... There is, there's, it's virtually unregulated, virtually unregulated. Um, it, it, we don't have a drinking water standard for PFAS, even, even though lots of groundwater is poisoned with PFAS. There's no drinking water standard. Um, we don't have, uh, even you know, right now until recently, it was required that uh, firefighting foam used by airports included this particular compound. Uh, we thought we scored a victory when we just simply said you don't have to require it any longer. But now we're really getting serious in Congress. When we started the PFAS task force, which I co-chair, um, about a year and a half ago we launched this, I couldn't get 10 members together to talk about it because nobody knew what it was. Now we've got 50 or 60 members of Congress, bipartisan members, and we're having some small victories here and there. We still have a long way to go. The bottom line is this stuff is poison. It has really negative health consequences. We need to know more about the health consequences, and we're doing some studies to, to daylight that. But what we've learned so far is we need to get it out of the, our environment. We need to stop mm-hmm. producing it. And we're going to have to spend an enormous amount of money to clean up the mistakes of the past. So it's simultaneously regulating it so that it doesn't go into the environment, cleaning up where it is, and then ultimately making sure that we provide health and other kinds of support to people whose lives have been tragically affected by exposure to PFAS. Industry has profited for decades by producing this stuff. 
Um, and so it's not as if there isn't anybody to turn to. There have been companies that have profited that still defend PFAS by saying that the science is not adequate to, to show that it's dangerous, which is just a bunch of nonsense. The science is well, there. You know, science is so interesting, and, and I'm probably going to say 10 more times. We could have another conversation about that alone for the next hour. And what I do appreciate so much about you is, is understanding that science. And these companies, correct me if I'm wrong, didn't they give some warning to agencies 25 years ago that this was kind of a bad actor? Keep an eye out for it. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing. We, we, we dig back in to even their own, uh, you know, their own records. There's a, there's a documentary out there that I recommend people see. It's called The Devil We Know. And it's, yes. it's all about how the company knew uh, that yes. this stuff was really dangerous, but it was the devil they knew. And they, they didn't want to turn away from something that was making them a lot of money because sooner or later they knew they would have to pay. But right now they're going to ride this horse as long as they could. And so it, at our expense, at, our at the expense. people's yeah. expense, yep. health and welfare, you know, um, <clears throat> We talk a lot about this in the, the upcoming book, but agencies, uh, EPA, when they have to commission studies and do the science, and that takes, can take 10 or 15 years for any conclusion what this chemical that's already gotten into the marketplace and in the environment can do. Don't you think that's a little ass backwards? How about <clears throat> you show me the study first? Yeah what it does or doesn't do before I ever put it into the environment. How did we get so ass backwards on that? Yeah, I mean, this is just part of this philosophy that we see here that industry comes first and it's up to us to prove that they're harming us. Uh, you know, before we put a new chemical in the environment, before we put a new chemical in the bodies of our citizens, I think the burden of proof ought to be on those producing this stuff to prove that it's safe. We don't, we shouldn't have to prove that it's poison because sometimes we don't know for 10, 15 or 20 years. And at that point in time, the damage is done. So part of it is just completely reframing the way the regulatory environment works and not allow the production of all, you know, who, who knows what with the idea that maybe someday it'll be proven to be harmful and then we'll stop it. I think, you know, we need to, if we're going to apply science in this environment, we ought to apply it on the front end and make sure that. that on the back end. Yep, because it's, it's, it's literally killing us. Literally. It's not just a, 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 a turn of speech. It's killing people. And this will be a fight in of itself politically to change uh, an entire system that's been, you know, I've always said, However, the system was designed or thought of or created or built that got us where we are today at some level could have been all well-intentioned. But I think that we really have to look at now that that isn't serving us going forward. And again, my, com my thought about I, I just don't understand why this divisiveness on this one issue can't be changed and moving forward how we do this differently. I'm in the legacy phase of my life and I've got four grandchildren. And if we don't change how we're dealing and moving into the future, they're 
I think, at risk of a really potentially uninhabitable, yeah. uncomfortable future. Yeah, and this is where I think like the work you're doing is so important because what if there's a I guess if there's a reason to be optimistic, it's this: when people know about the threat that they face, okay. then they get animated, then they act. Like we saw it in Flint, we've seen it with PFAS, we saw it in Parkersburg, West Virginia. We've seen it everywhere. When yes. People know when they get the facts, when they get the straight story then our system does seem to get activated and, and work. I mean, sometimes it happens too late. I agree with that notion. But uh, I think our goal, our responsibility is to provide some daylight to help people, not to tell them what's good for them, but just tell them what's going on. They'll figure out what's good for them and, and they'll take the necessary actions to mm-hmm. pursue it. But if, if they don't know, then they're not in a position to protect themselves. Well, that's the importance of the work that you're doing and the importance of the voice of people in Flint and across this country and the work that I'm doing and trying to put out there because the more they know, um, the more they'll respond, the better they'll be. And I want to uh, try to understand where um, that suppressive moment came for them where they felt they couldn't do that. Uh, Here's the hope. I'm watching it today we are waking up, we are rising up. I've always believed in that great seal by the people, for the people, we the people. And as we start getting them more information and they start seeing in their own backyard what's happening and that it's rolled right down to them and to their health and to their child, that they will be empowered and pick up the torch, if you will, and push forward with you and other leaders to change the future. And I I know that sounds silly, but I'm going to tell you what, I believe in that. And for 20, 25 years I've done this, and I've seen precisely, as have you in Flint, that I think will be a role model for this country forever on how they rose up. Yeah, Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, we just, you know, we... There's too much at stake, and people, I think now, you know, we've just seen it in the last few weeks, people are beginning to take those streets and have their voices heard. And when they do, um, they realize that they can make a difference. And it's, if, if it's 10 people at a city council meeting or 1,000 people in the street, uh, it, makes, it makes all the difference in the world. Well, I hope you know that you do too, Congressman Kildee. And I have seen that, and, and I, I, I get around, you know, leadership and – you have consistently been there, um, and your follow through and your commitment is like none I've never seen. And you know, sometimes we lose faith in in our leaders for that reason, but you've shown us otherwise. Um, and I'm very thankful. I know Flint is uh, for the work that you do on on lead and Flint and policy and PFOS. And I commend you. And I am really thankful that you took some time to share with listeners today. Well, thank you very much. Coming from you, that means a lot to me because uh, you, uh, you've been a fighter your whole life. So thank you. Thank you so much. Well, we'll keep, a, keep it up. I'm sure I'll bump into you sometime soon. For sure. Thank Congressman you. Congressman Kildee, thank you so much. Yeah.